Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. I think the the audience is wondering how are you. This, is, this is the the third or fourth post Burning Man podcast. Oh, this is number four actually. I started this not long after I moved out to California. There are enough people out here that that were going that made me curious. That that's when it all started. And now yeah. So if, if I might jump in, like the the <laughs> first post Burning Man podcast is. Uh, one of the all-time great Exponent podcasts. Uh, so we will put a link in the show notes. If, if you're a relatively new listener, one, you, like, you should go back and listen to all the podcasts because, of course, they're amazing. No, but we, we self-reference a lot, so it's useful. But two, uh, this podcast in particular is, is, uh, is a good one. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I remember you uh, talking to me after the second Burning Man, or actually before the second Burning Man, saying something like, I wonder whether it's going to be as good as the first one, because the first time you have one of these experiences, it's obviously you have no frame of reference. And then the second time, it's going to be much more different. And the way I describe it to people is the first time you jump out of a plane is the first time you jump out of a plane. But after you've done it a hundred times, it it starts to become a little bit more normal. And I think the second year that didn't feel to be the case and last year it started to creep in and this year it was it was harder for exactly that reason in fact your words were echoing in my head a little bit out there um it's uh the the nature of the magic is somewhat gone but as I reflected on it I think it's like a lot of things, whether it's relationships or, or organizations, like as, as you get more experience, as things gr- grow older, so to speak, the nature of it starts to change. And I think the role that people play as they've been out there a few times begins to change. And it's less about you experiencing that magic as opposed to you, um, becoming a custodian of the culture and you providing, um, providing that magic to people who are out there for the first year. So there are a bunch of really cool principles that are a part of Burning Man. Uh, One of them is leave no trace. And there's a big push around this thing called moop or matter out of place. So it's really important not to leave trash lying around and you pick, you take out everything that you bring in. And it's one of these things that uh, you start to help indoctrinating uh, new new people with uh, and that you do it in part by talking to them about it, but you also do it by setting an example or if you see stuff on the ground, you reach down and pick it up. And in much the same way, we've talked about organizational culture on, on this show quite a bit. It's exactly the same thing out there and it's a vastly different culture to anything I've experienced and it's kind of fun to be... Uh, a custodian of it. And in the spirit of providing a little bit of that magic experience to people who are out there for their first time this year, I actually volunteered on an art project before I left um, this project called the Tree of Tenere, which is was like a four-story uh, tree with 25,000 LED lights on it. And it was pretty spectacular seeing out, seeing it out there. And it was, it was nice to be behind the curtain a little bit instead of in front of it, but definitely a very different experience than the previous few years. So are you going to go again next year? I don't know. We'll see. Um, it's, uh, the, the nature of it has started to change, but the feeling of, I mean, you know what else? The nature has changed of the, of the event itself or your perception of the event has started to change. I mean, over the past few years, it's probably been my perception has changed a lot more than the nature of it. But the parallel, as I'm thinking about it, I guess I draw is, 
is uh, for probably more for Western listeners. It's like receiving, it's like the present exchange at Christmas. When you're a kid, it's much more about the receiving of gifts. But as you get older and as you get more, uh, as you grow up, so to speak, it's much more about the giving of gifts. And uh, I, I think that will start to, that will start to be the flavor of participation that I have going forward. And I don't know if it's going to be every year because it is a big commitment. It's, um, you need to take everything you need out there with you. Um, and it's, it's nine days. It's, it's, it's hellish to get out to, uh, uh, a city of 70,000 people springs up and it can only travel down a two lane road. So there are some pretty big wait times getting in and some pretty big wait times getting out. And this year was extremely hot as well. Um, so I, is it going to be something I do every year? Probably not. I guess we'll see. But if I go back and I think I will, it will be with a different perspective on it than I have had previous years. Maybe you should wait until you, uh, you, you your startup fails and then you can go again. Uh, I saw that article. I, I I I think that's a fair assessment. I think there are some people out there that are using it as an excuse to run away from things or a networking event or something like that. It, it's interesting, actually. I, I came across another one of the turnkey camps this year. One founded by, I'm not going to mention who or what it, the, the, the personalities involved, but it did feel very much against the ethos of Burning Man. It was all roped off in RVs and you could see it from the outside, but you couldn't get in. Um, uh, there were ice luges and stuff like that. It, it all f- felt a little bit over the top. And that's certainly something that, um, doesn't feel like it's in the spirit of of what the event the community is all about but as is always the case as these things grow particularly when you take a little bit of a libertarian streak and let people do their own thing stuff like that is going to crop up well i think you fully transitioned to the veteran back in my day yeah yeah a little bit this perspective but it only it only took four years i guess everything accelerates when you get older so don't feel bad there you go our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring this episode of Exponent. With MailChimp, you can see how you're doing. There's always room to be better. MailChimp reports show you how well you're connecting with your audience and how much money you're bringing in. MailChimp can give you customized tips for improvement, and you can check in from anywhere with their mobile dashboard. Our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent, as they do every week. Yep, awesome. So I've had a little bit of a meta issue, <laughs> I think, with Mr. Decker, and it kind of was definitely the case with, with this week's article. There are was recent news from the advertising industry where the the largest advertising company in the world, WPP, announced uh, results and a forecast that was way down from what, what they predicted before. And there was certainly an aspect of this that was, you know, a little sort of like, you know, I, I told you so. Like a, a year ago, wrote an article about TV advertising surprising strength and sort of like inevitable fall. And it was really tied into this idea that that, you know, all this stuff's tied together. Like all there's the internet is affecting mm. all these different. It's affecting the retailers. It's affecting the 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 CPG makers. It, it's affecting the television itself via Netflix and things like that. Of course, ever like this is unsustainable. Like it, it's going to go down. It's going to go down. And what's interesting about uh, kind of got into this piece with WPP is you can look at WPP in isolation and start to unpack w- w- what's happening. And what's happening is it used to be. 
a advertising agency sat in the middle and there was a whole bunch of places where advertisements could be placed, right? Could be placed in newspapers, could be placed on radio, could be placed on TV, and could be placed and, and particularly in the US, this was all very fragmented, particularly back in the day when these agencies came about. And so if you're Procter and Gamble or, or whatever it might be, or Ford Motor Company, it's not really viable for you to go and try to place advertisements in all these different little little places, right? And if you do, if you were to build out that sales force, well, like it's not very efficient because then GM's building out the same thing or Unilever's building out the same thing. It makes so much more sense to have one dedicated company or companies competing with each other to do that job for you. Like it is a perfect example of what could be outsourced. It's not a core competency. You know, the core competency of Ford is making is making cars. You know, mm. it's not the core competency is not placing ads in every little newspaper or placing ads on every TV station. And and so these agencies made perfect sense as a sort of choke point, but I say choke point in a positive sense. It was a choke point that everyone in the value chain wanted because it made it more convenient and it was a natural place to sort of scale horizontally across not just all the advertisers, but across all the sort of advertisees, the places where the advertisers went. Right. A very clear value proposition. You, you don't want to have to go and deal with all these individual distribution outlets, you, the newspapers, the radio stations, whatever it might be. You have a message and we'll get it there. And I, it, this, I mean, this ties in super neatly to the conversation we had last week, uh, the, the, around the con, the law of conservation of attractive profits. And uh, the, the point that came out of that is the nature of the integration is absolutely essential. And these guys, given the way that the value chain was structured, had made a decision to integrate across distribution, like they'd figure out where to place the ads, but they'd also help you with the creation of the ads. What's interesting, and I think the point that you've made with aggregation theory is that the, uh, uh, the the eyeballs have started to shift from all the individual newspapers into places like Facebook or Google or whatever. And as that choke point has shifted from uh, the for, uh, as the choke as the eyeballs have shifted as the uh, the the place where people have their attention has shifted the nature of the integration that is valuable has started to shift and an organization like WPP is just not well suited to this this new era right because remember the goal of Ford Motor Company was not to place an advertisement in a newspaper right the goal of Procter and Gamble was not to make a commercial for a television station what's the goal. The goal is to actually reach consumers, to reach the, the sort of the sort of endpoint, right? To reach people. The problem is there was no way to reach individuals like that efficiently. Mm. So you would reach a proxy. The proxy mm. would be would be television stations. The proxy would be newspapers, and that was the closest you could get. And we've spent countless time talking about in newspapers, in particular, why like how that gave them so much power, so much economic Mm. power, because they were the closest you could get to consumers and being close to consumers is a really valuable place to be. And as a side note, I I say, I mentioned this and I think I've said this podcast, but this is why I've spent so much time on newspapers again and again, because there's, if you understand what happened there, it's so explanatory Mm. for what, for what happened in lots of other places. And this is a perfect example. The, the advertising agencies, and, and remember, you start a company that builds up, right? So you start a company very small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And your company 
you know, shapes itself around the problem at hand. So advertising agencies shape themselves on the problem of first reaching newspapers, all the newspapers in a city, then then all the newspapers in a country, then they add on radio, then they add on TV. And then as these multinational corporations came around, the advertising agencies went multinational as well. So WPP bought up all kinds of agencies all over the world. There's all like all those famous names you've heard of are all a part of WPP or 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 other conglomerates because then they could their scale could match the scale of their customers and their scale on the flip side could match the scale of sort of the media opportunity that was all over the world. And obviously, like the point about reaching individual customers, you think about what Facebook is able to provide with a degree of precision that no newspaper is able to match because of all the information they have or Google with intent and it just makes that offering, not, not necessarily the creation of the advertising, but the, that integration down into distribution completely redundant. And they've built so much of their organization around that. And I, it's actually interesting that we, we've talked about WPP because I think they're in part starting to realize that distribution in and of itself to existing content channels isn't going to be enough. They're going to have to integrate some other way. They actually, in the past couple of days made a $5 million investment in uh, Gimlet Media, which is the big podcasting network. And that that speaks to me exactly what you're describing, which is the recognition that having a relationship with a newspaper or whatever isn't going to matter. Having a relationship with Facebook to Ford isn't going to matter because if Ford only has one place it needs to go, it'll just go straight to Facebook. But if they can find content, if they can find uh, if they can find places where they can get close to consumers, insert themselves there or make value or make money off that, then there is still some use for that distribution. But my suspicion is given their global nature and the size of them, this, while it's uh, probably a sound investment in terms of compared to the past, it's probably a little too little, a little too late. Yeah. I mean, what's what I think it's useful to sort of, sort of back out and, and not get, get too much of the specifics. Like mm. generally speaking, uh, what makes Facebook and Google so I'm kind of rearticulating a bit what we just said, but what makes them so powerful is they have a direct connection to users, where users mm. are on their platforms directly, and they can put ads directly in front of them, and the ads can be highly targeted, and, and, and all the, and all those sorts of things. Now, is that going to replace all advertising overnight? No, not at all. I mean, there's there's still lots of evidence that TV advertising is still the most effective advertising, and that's part of why there's such a push by by both Google and Facebook into video. Google is obviously well down that road with YouTube, but Facebook really trying to build up that sort of aspect because mm. that's where a huge number of growth is going to be. And, and But the point is, is they are closer to the customers. And so originally the agency like WP is like, okay, we'll add on Facebook. We, it's just another channel. We can also sell it to Facebook. We can also sell, sell or we place ads on Google and, oh, we'll buy some digital agencies and our, our agencies that are already in house will add on digital capabilities and, and, and you can do it all here. But you get in a situation, the, the difference is that it's not like adding on another channel because hmm. the the internet is not it's not you, you, i think media companies it is companies, the channel right? right well media companies and advertisers i think think about it like okay there's here's the tv channel uh-huh. here's the radio <laughs> channel here's the print channel and now we're going to have the internet channel and the the problem is that the internet is not the, like the medium is the message sort of thing right the internet mm. is is at a different level of the stack it is directly connecting to consumers there's no intermediaries and because of that the it's like it's almost overwhelming you have so many ways you, you because you can reach all the customers it, you get that flip the flip we talked about again and again where you're flipping from 
there being scarcity, right? Because mm-hmm. there used to be a scarcity in channels. There was a scarce number of ways to reach consumers. We flipped to abundance. You can reach any consumer you want, any any possible way. You can reach them on Facebook, on Google, on websites, on wherever it might be. And the implication of that switch is not that the former folks that own the channel now like, oh, their initial reaction is like, oh, look, we have now, look at all these new ways to reach the customer. But <laughs> in that lies their doom because the reality is everything about their business is predicated on owning a scarce resource. And when the reality is abundance, then they're completely not, not, not suited to, to achieve that. Right. And not to mention that the internet is just kneecapping all those existing channels. I mean, you're right. They're not going to go away overnight. And in fact, I, I foresee opportunities, uh, arbitrage opportunities with advertising. Uh, it's funny now you get so targeted on the internet that you send people a piece of physical mail. Folks are like, what, what is this? I'm not used to getting it. Like if it's, if it's addressed and targeted well using some of those digital properties, but by and large, all these TV, newspapers all these things are going away and it's being replaced by it's being replaced by the internet it's not just some other channel it is the channel and if you're it it just upends it upends the fundamental assumption for these guys existing in the form that they exist right now right and so you just made two points that i want to unpack i think it's useful to unpack so the first thing is that google and facebook are forming a new integration point in sort of the 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 value chain when it comes to to advertising so they are closer to the consumer they're integrating sort of the, the delivery of ads and the acquisition of customers all into one sort of bundle and so on the backside Yes, you will still have agencies, but maybe they're only doing creative, for example, mm-hmm. right? They're, it's not combined with the distribution. Yep. And the point of the theory, and I think you see this playing out, is that means prices go down a lot. You you can charge a margin when you have integration. If you're just a modular player, you're in a pure sort of competition space, and your prices are going to weigh down. And you've seen that with advertising agencies, where their prices have had to go down considerably because there's no there's no inherent like structural differentiation because the, the the point of integration has changed. So again, just limiting this to the very narrow point of the structure of advertising, the point of integration is shifting. It has it's completely shifted the internet and it's shifting in other places. And that it follows then that that's going to be a problem for the the folks that used to be the integrators in the middle. Hold the second point because Building on that, it's, it's given the fact that there is this abundance of content, it becomes even more critical that the content you create actually cuts through and gets consumers' attention. And it might actually cause a lot of these organizations, uh, particularly given they now don't need to worry about distribution, to start bringing this in-house and start to think about it as something that they need to develop a core competency in. Because if they don't, it won't matter how much they spend, they're not going to get people's attention because they're being bombarded online by so much stuff. Well, the other point that happens too is when prices go down, cost structures become get, come under a lot of mm. pressure. And you have these like conglomerates like, like WPP that have duplicated all kinds of effort. And like mm. and they're saying on this on the earnings call, like, oh, we need to like build a horizontal capability where we can work together better. <laughs> You're not gonna Mm-mm. like we you don't shift from being a vertical company like that to a horizontal one in part, not just because it's culturally impossible, but also it's not 
it's not possible from a from a profit and loss perspective. Your 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 company's finances are not structured to be a horizontal service provider that's charging a flat fee and making it up in volume. And so what you will get the the future of agencies in general, I think, is going to be more and more sort of pure play digital agencies that start with the assumption that Google and Facebook are the endpoint integrators, right? Mm-hmm. And then their entire company and their culture and their cost structure build up around that. And this is the point. The reason why the agencies succeeded is, is because they they form themselves to fit the opportunity. When a new opportunity comes along, it's like a different shape. Who's going to win? It's going to be a new company that can form the new shape that fits it, right? And th- we had this conversation, you know, many years ago. I think in the context of like uh, PayPal or something like that. Like this is why startups beat incumbents mm, it, right. because incumbents have all the resources, they have all the money, they can leverage, they can bring in blah blah blah. Why do they lose? They lose because the fundamental shape of the organization is not suited to the new opportunity. Like winning in business is hard. You have to have everything in your favor, and if the entire like if you have the the, if the entire structure of your organization is not in your favor, good luck because you're going to need it. Yeah, you've you've built a well-oiled machine built for a certain set of, of environmental characteristics and the environment has completely changed. Uh, your mind went to PayPal. My mind went to the, the example that you gave earlier on in this podcast, which is newspapers and how you're seeing organizations like BuzzFeed, which are born in a digital era, able to crush so many of these incumbent players because they're able to build just what they need as opposed to starting from something that was built from a previous era and trying to throw stuff overboard and invariably it doesn't work. It's like you've built a race car and all of a sudden the, the, it's not a, you're a Formula One car and all of a sudden the track is is you're going off road. It's like this is not something that's easy to change. You you you, you don't just bolt on some big four-wheel drive wheels and away you go, right? Yeah, and as a side note, this is why I always I think acquisition is a much better strategy than trying to like build it yourself. Like if you're already mm-hmm. a big company, and PayPal, for example, like they're actually doing pretty well. But a big part of it is because they acquired Braintree and they acquired Venmo, which mm-hmm. are were new companies that were built from the ground up for the opportunities they were going to serve instead of trying to mm-hmm. retrofit like an auction payment tool to like peer-to-peer transactions, right? Like, no, right. what if we actually built peer-to-peer transactions from the ground up, which like like Venmo? Well, that's, yeah, that's a much better idea. And then use the profits you gain to acquire the sort of new, the new, the new entrant is a much more, it's, it's a much better, it, it just makes so much more sense as a strategy. And, you know, usually part of the problem is just like the, the it's honestly pride. It's like, no, we could do that. We could build that. Yeah. What advantage we have? And no, you right. can't. Absolutely. And then, and then learning how to manage that acquisition properly, leaving it at arm's length as opposed to, you know, some of the, some of the less well managed acquisitions where they start to try and integrate it in without realizing that the, the, the fundamental business model needs to be different to serve this new opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, that, we're a bit on a sidetrack. So we've looked at advertising just in isolation, right? So you can see, and what's fascinating is this is like, I mean, I feel sheepish bring up aggregation theory, right? Because like I, I talk about it all the time. But the reason I talk about it all the time is not to like pat myself on the back. It's because I believe its explanatory power is significant in multiple industries. Like and because it springs from the internet itself and the nature of the internet and its impact on business. And so when it happens to another industry, like you can see like WPP, it's like a it's all it's in part, the reason why it's part such a perfect 
articulation of aggregation theory and its effect is because advertising is intimately tied to the media, right? And so mm. <laughs> no surprise that you can see the same sort of thing happening even if it's taking a little more time time to occur. Yeah, I, you're, you're selling it a little short. You're talking about it in terms of explanatory power. I would actually use a different word, which is predictive power. And these are the when you get when you get an idea that is able to help you see into the future and see how things are going to play out like those are the most valuable ideas whether you're an entrepreneur an investor or even an employee trying to decide what what kind of company you you want to work at or which company to work at like being able to pick something up and use it as a lens to figure out how things are going to play out and i mean the 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 other one that we often keep coming back to is disruption and yeah the 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 circumstances in which you apply disruption have changed and the theory needs to evolve as a result of it but it has tremendous predictive power and that is the power and and the reason why you shouldn't feel sheepish about aggregation theory because if if you can use it as a way to figure out what's going to happen in the future that's an incredibly powerful tool well thank you <laughs> so th- w- let's expand though beyond advertising you know the, the the bigger reason why the advertising industry is the agency industry is so screwed is not just that this is happening internally to the industry it's that it's happening on all sides of the industry. So the big cause that WP cited for their being down is that C- CPG sales are down. Mm. And and or and, and not just prices are down, but volumes down. And and so they're like they're talking about you know, well, GDP and, and everybody and they're talking about well advertising starting to couple from GDP. Like, mm-hmm. whoa, that's a big deal. We we've talked previously that advertising has been a stable percentage <laughs> of GDP for a hundred years. Like now it, I believe over the last three or four years, it's actually dropped below one percent. Whereas that it was at like one point two percent for like the last twenty five or thirty years. It's dropped below one percent pretty consistently. And like that, like that is a massive indicator of just this profound shift that is happening. Across tons of industries, because that's what makes advertising so interesting. Is it, it's not just about CPG, it's not just about retail, it's not just about adults, but all of it. And and so you have that happening. And we've talked a lot about CPG, about the changes that are happening to CPG, and what when you go from an area where you control shelf space mm. to an area where you search for an item, like on, on Amazon. How, how fundamentally different that sort of company needs to be, in, and what yeah. drives the- value. The bifurcation of how you're going to have brands that everybody knows that become default choices, which used to have a lot more of the market than they do right now, but will still have a place for people who don't care about things. But at the same time, this opening up of all these niches targeting specific people because you don't have to worry about the traditional distribution onto a limited amount of shelves. And you start to see things like Dollar Shave Club and so on and so forth, where it's just going to upend what has traditionally been CPG, like this bifurcation, and there's going to be all these interesting things down operating in the tail. Right, exactly. So um, so you have that happening in CPG. You're going to have it happen in, in, in other industries. You have the disruption of the car industry that we've talked, that, that we've, that we've talked about with ride sharing and potential future of self-driving cars and all that sort of thing. All of these are the biggest advertisers for that, the biggest advertisers. And so the agencies are going to feel their pain. And then on the flip side, we, we, you've already, we've already talked about like where do those advertisements go? They go into newspapers, they go onto radio, they go onto TV. And those industries are being completely upended and destroyed all at the same time. And, and it's all interconnected and, and everything is changing. And the reason why I, I wanted to make this point again this week, even though I know I've made, 
I made all these points separately. I, I talked about the agency. Mm. I'll put these links in there. I talked about the ad agency last spring. Uh, last summer, I talked about how all these are all interconnected. Uh, and then uh, what was the other one? And obviously, aggregation theory. I've you know I've talked about at length. But the reason to to sort of put it in a package here is to reemphasize one: the internet really is fundamentally changing things. Two, to your point. It's a consistent, repeatable disruption that's happening. And if we can, un- and so we, it's worth it to reiterate what that explanation is because that should be central to our sort of thinking going forward. And then, three, the reason why it's important is it's so tempting when you look at particular things in isolation to mm. craft your sort of remedies and policies and what should we do about this for that specific situation. And that's why it's important to step back and see the same thing is happening all over the place because I think that changes your point of view about how to think about what do we do now going forward. You hear a statement like the internet is changing everything and it almost comes across as trite, but like you you pick on advertising the the way we just did. And then you think about how that then flows into the television ecosystem and how so much television relies on advertising from these traditional advertisers. And if the advertisers start cutting back or the companies that are selling products start cutting back on advertising, Advertising. The advertisers are creating less stuff. It's not as good. It's less advertising. And at the same time, people are watching less TV at the same time. Right, exactly. And, and it's all, it, all the internet is the cause of all of this. And so it's like, right. it's like there's a triple, quadruple, pentiple sized attack, but the attacker is all the same. Right. And I mean, you you think that people are starting to switch over to Netflix and so there are less eyeballs on the televisions at the same time. Like it's it's these massive virtuous cycles and almost death spirals that are that will compound on each other in in related industries and things will hold up for a while until all of a sudden they don't. But it's so interesting to watch. And I, I feel like so few people put that in the broader context like WPP like yeah internet or whatever but it's like that story of understanding how these various industries are all affecting each other doesn't get told anywhere near as often as you would expect and you're right like when it comes to when it comes to remedies or when it comes I mean investing obviously this is hugely helpful in all those things we talked about previously but you start to hear people complaining about these companies are getting very very big they're starting to approach monopoly status and they are the folks are reaching for so many of the old tools in terms of trying to figure out what's the best approach in terms of how to regulate these folks without realizing that hang on this is completely different this is unlike anything else the assumptions have all been zeroed as a result of the internet and how we approach this needs to be fundamentally different as well yeah, and that, that was sort of the tie-in I, I tried to make it at, at the point. It maybe made this article a little too complicated. You know, maybe it should have been nice to say, look, another example of aggregation theory and, and just leave it at that. Uh, but the reason why – lately there's been a lot of talk about, about antitrust. And, mm. you know, I think we were very much – you know, if we can pat ourselves on the back, like we were very ahead of the curve on this. One of our it's very like, first episodes right. was like, you know – like what? How is antitrust going to work when these companies win because people like them, right? It's yeah. not the old like we control distribution sort of thing. And the reason why I I wanted to sort of make that point at the end here is if you it's important to realize that if you just look at advertising, you would say, hmm, 
so-and-so, this needs to change or this is problematic. If you only look at newspapers, oh, so-and-so needs to change, this is problematic. If you only look at TV, oh, yeah. X, Y, Z. If you only look at whatever the industry might be, you will come up with a set of policy prescription or a point of view on antitrust, for example, like is, is the most obvious one. Because the implication of aggregation theory is the aggregator, like the end, the end state is a monopoly, like because it generates winner-take-all effects because it, it builds these sort of virtuous cycles. And so antitrust and aggregation go hand in hand. Like they, they are... And that's why, like, I can't stop talking about aggregation theory because maybe the first part of aggregation theory for me was describing and articulating this and and appreciating and highlighting that this is a consistent pattern we see across industries. But to leave it there is almost a derelict of of Stratechery's role in my in my opinion because what are the implications of that what does that mean going forward and without question one of the implications of aggregation theory is monopoly like it it's just the what it leads to and the answer to monopoly is, is you know antitrust regulation well it's almost like i i feel compelled to talk about that because that has to be what's next I mean, I, I totally agree. And if you if you roll back to that episode, it was in the first 10. We should probably link to this one as well. It was this nature of a world of scarcity versus a world of abundance. But one of the one of the biggest differences in these types of monopolies versus the types of monopolies in the past is that the types of monopolies in the past, consumers felt they had no choice. And because they had no choice, it gave that uh, it gave that organization an ability to increase prices and consumers would begin to resent the company even more. The big difference here is these companies, they are winning on the basis of making customers happy. And if you pick up the old tools without a fundamental re-examination of what's going on here, you are... you're you're going to have unintended consequences. You're going to destroy things that are actually good. And maybe you're just going to open it up for somebody else to come along and do exactly the same thing all over again. Yeah. We, you know, that's, yeah. There's three points. You just, I, I was going to say two, but you just added a third one. That was really good. So, so one is like, yeah, you might do the wrong thing. You might actually make things worse for consumers. And again, there's a big debate around is looking at only consumer welfare sufficient? And I think both of us agree, no. Like, we're, I think we are mm. both tend to be more favorable towards the European approach that thinks about competition broadly. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it's not important, right? I mean, you have to really consider and take that very – take that to task. I mean, these people – I saw this when the Whole Foods thing kind of closed. It was like, oh, Amazon, I can't believe they didn't even look at it, blah, blah. And like – and it's like people love Amazon and people are excited about this deal, right? Now, is that a reason enough if people are happy and excited? Should that guide our policy? No, not necessarily, but it's worth considering for one. Yeah. And that leads to point two, the, the status quo for antitrust regulation in the United States is all consumer welfare, which means if you actually do want to make changes, it has it's a political issue. You have to actually change hearts and minds such that you can change the law. To sit in a corner and to dilly-dally about the law says this, what will we buy this, it's it's a waste of time. It's worthless. This is a political question because nothing is going to happen until you change the politics around this issue, which means you have to consider the consumer point of view because at the end of the day, politics is – consumers were large. Totally. I think to ignore that is to ignore the fact that they're going to then vote on these things. And if they like, if they, if they like these organizations, if they like what Amazon is providing for them, that then you start to destroy that. And, uh, you're going to, you're going to feel their wrath 
further down or or worse that they're going to be ambivalent towards it or like why can't i buy my stuff on amazon why are you playing with this it's it's um and for what if you haven't if you if you and i think this was the third point that that you recognized i made like if you haven't fixed the fundamental if the fix the fundamentals recognize what's what's going on here if you use those old tools to break these new companies up all you're doing is creating a vacuum for someone else to come along and and do exactly the same thing right exactly hold on to that third point let's go back to that in in just a second Mm. The other thing, the other point about this is I think this is a mistake that tech companies themselves are making, particularly Google. I wrote about this a, a couple of weeks ago. It came out that Google, you know, allegedly pressured a think tank to release their sort of antitrust group because they threatened to pull funding allegedly after this group released a press release praising the EU's, you know, antitrust decision against, against mm. Google. And <laughs> it's so phenomenally dumb because – up until now, antitrust has been this sort of below-the-surface thing that happens mostly in Washington, D.C., right? Mm. And that's that's good terrain for Google. That's good terrain for these companies because they can buy influence. They can do all the things, all, all the lobbying, mm. all the think-thinking and, and, and the conferences and the experts. And, and keeping it there is good because what's the status quo? The status quo is that all that matters is consumer welfare and the nature of aggregators is that they make consumers happy and that's where their monopoly power comes from, right? So the status quo is really good for Google. It's really good for all the internet companies. Which means the greatest danger to Google is not a fine from the EU, as big it might be, and it certainly isn't a freaking press release. The biggest danger to Google is that political sentiment in the United States broadly, not just in Washington, D.C., starts to shift against them. Mm. And however it happened, a press release suddenly mushroomed into this huge story about Google suppressing ideas it didn't agree with and it's like wait google the, the search company that's supposed to be completely objective and neutral it started it's it started shifting politics politics broadly and it, it was it was phenomenally stupid <laughs> like from my like sort of business perspective because it, it elevated it from this sort of niche issue into a political issue and it's only when antitrust becomes a big picture political issue that the status quo is threatened the status quo that currently favors all these companies Silicon Valley really can be amateur hour when it comes to this stuff. It's almost like there's a fundamental belief that, oh, we're, we're doing this idealistic stuff to make the world a better place. We don't need to get out there with our narrative and, and win the hearts and minds that we've talked about and, and talk about how what we're doing is fantastic. And so often they, they play these tactical blunt, they, they miss the forest for the trees and they focus on something like this press release that nobody was going to read. And and for what? And they turn it into this massive issue. And I mean, the obvious one that comes to mind, and it can't be a podcast, an exponent podcast without talking about Uber is how that company has fundamentally underplayed its its positive impact by focusing on all the wrong things. But I don't. We don't want to go down that rabbit hole. So yeah, thanks. You just earned us like twenty five emails with that comment. Sorry. Yeah. Well, but the other thing, well, you you that was a generous interpretation that we're doing good things for the world. The more cynical one is, yeah. oh look, there goes a bunch of like techies thinking they know everything. Yeah. Right. And, and like, sure. oh, we can, yeah, we can engineer our way around Washington D.C. And you engineer yourself right into a, a mess, like just mm. like, like, you like, and you see this all the time with in tech, right? You get clever engineering that opens up massive security holes, or that mm. ends up being like super racist or super sexist, something like that, right? Because you end up with this cloister view, and you think you know everything, and actually, mm. no, you don't. Anyhow, we're 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 getting we're getting a little sidetracked. <laughs> Indeed. 
so let's get so let's go to your third point. The third point about this might happen again. That that is what I was. That's the broader point I was trying to get in this article, and I think you just you articulated it much better than I did. I was thinking more of the positive aspect. Well, let's do it this way: if it's inevitable that this happens, if the implication of the internet is that you're going to have these big platforms, because that's just the returns to scale and the way it works is just it's going to happen this way, then the answer is to figure out how to live with that scale. It's not to like try to roll it back. Because if you're rolling it back, it's like you know the 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 proverbial pushing the rock up the hill, right? And it, and it comes mm. it comes back with Sisyphus or whoever it was, right? Yeah. A- and that's the key point. I was really trying to get it here. Unless you understand what's happening, I put it in. You might forego the future, right? Because to me, the future is these big platforms and the opportunities that come from being on top of them, right? What are the new kinds of businesses that can be built with the presence of YouTube, with the presence of Facebook? We reach everyone. I mean, I think about again if I can. If I could go back to a favorite topic, like Stratechery, like the fact that I have social media where I can – it's like free marketing. That's amazing. You know what I mean? For me, social media is the most amazing thing ever. And what other – you have Etsy. You have YouTube stars. Like all these sound like, oh, that's fine for them. How long are they going to be? But again, these keep multiplying. You keep getting more and more. And to me, that is the future. The future is – what happens when you have an economy where the addressable market is the entire world? What sort of new businesses can be created? What sort of new opportunities might there be? And if you get so focused on, no, like these platforms are too big, one, it might be inevitable. You might be fight, be Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. And it's just going to keep happening again and again. But two, in your process of trying to push the rock up the hill, you might be squishing all the potential opportunities that are necessary for the future. It's I it's I, I think that's an excellent articulation of it. And you can see this kind of thing happening in domains outside of text specifically. If you look at some of I mean, obviously there's been there's economic upheaval happening as a result of the internet and all these forces that we're talking about. And people are reaching for economic policies, like and not to name specific who's doing it, but in general, there are economic policies being proposed that that hark back back to the 1930s and 1940s and it's just a it's a knee-jerk reaction this is bad let's just take this blunt instrument that might have worked in the past or has been proposed in the past that seems on its face value to make things better without doing the hard work of understanding exactly what's going on uh whether whether it's it's like cutting back on trade or putting tariffs in place or whatever those things might be and the the nature of the global economy is such that those things are going to have ramifications and it's probably not going to be particularly positive for you because you haven't figured out the fundamentals of what's going on and how to address and how to work inside those circumstances and it feels like the same thing's happening with antitrust where people are just reaching for the old tools assuming that what worked in the past will work again without doing the hard work of like things have changed and the way we need to approach this needs to change as well. Yeah, your your point about the politics is, is spot on because this wasn't a partisan thing, right? There was there was there's pushes on all sides of the aisle of, of like, you know, building up uh, you know, American manufacturing for example, or just just to take mm. a, a, an example. And you can almost leave aside any of the specifics. At the end of the day, if I'm right in that the internet is not just a sort of like we had TV and a radio, now we have the internet, but it's actually a fundamental foundational shift that affects everything and it affects everything in a predictable sort of way, then that's why I feel compelled to keep writing about it. You have to see this. If you don't see this, 
everything you do is going to be wrong because it's all the assumptions are all wrong. Like that's that's my point. My the underlying reason why I come back to this again and again is the internet is a bigger deal than you think. It's been affecting everything for 25, 30 years, and it's still bigger than you think. It's still a bigger deal because if I'm talking about not just a shift in structure, I'm talking about a fundamental shift in assumptions, the very foundational pieces of society, of business, of economics, of government, all these sorts of things. I've written about government and the elections and the effect that the internet has Mm. on the electoral process, right? I was like, man, it's so crazy what's happening. Well, look at it. Our elections are crazy. You know, CPG products are going crazy. Advertising is going crazy. TV is going crazy. Print's going crazy. Sports are going crazy. Everything's going crazy. Let's think. Is there a common thing that happened in the last (laughs) 20 years that touches all these? Yes, the internet did. And not just that, there's actually a way you can see how it has these effects. And so I'm sorry if I have the same thing over and over again, but it's like, we have to see this if we're going to actually make progress and move forward. And that there, there can be no going back. It's like going back yeah. to, a, to a ship that's underwater. There's nothing there. Like we're going back to nothing because that, that world is gone. And so we can mourn it. We can say that was better. We mm. can say, and like, I don't begrudge people saying, you know, like, man, it was nice back in the 50s. We had three channels and control what it was. And like, yeah, there's lots of bad stuff on the surface, but at least we were all on the surface on the same page. I can appreciate this sort of sentimentality and reaching back towards that world. But you can simultaneously think that world was better. I tend to disagree because I think all the stuff that happened under the surface and was, was way worse. We just didn't know about it. But you know, you can disagree with that. You can say, actually, it was better back then. It doesn't matter. There is no going back. Sounds like a good name for a show episode, actually. <laughs> well, but that, and that's why, like, I come back to this point, and like, and we'll make the point again. Like, this is how the world's changing. Given that it's changing the way, where 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 should we go? And and for regulation, I think that that's a really interesting point to make because the the antitrust case I keep coming back to. Like, I, I'm going to write a big article about this. I, I I'm still kind of working this through. Is AT and T to me? That's the most mm. interesting antitrust case in the sort of 20th century because AT and T is a network based monopoly, right? It's not a distribution based monopoly. There's there's I think there's two really fundamental different types here, and the appropriate response has to be different in, in, in each case. And I think there's, that's where we have, we have to start somewhere, somewhere on there. So it obviously wouldn't be an exponent of, <laughs> without one of your everything is changed rants, which was particularly good. But that last point is super interesting uh, around AT&T. Obviously, there's a, there's a bunch of interesting, um, there's a bunch of inter- interesting antitrust cases, but I hadn't thought it through it, thought through the lens of which of these is most similar to the experience we have now. And your positioning of the, uh, AT&T being a network versus traditional distribution is super interesting because that is most analogous to what we're experiencing now, though there is one big difference, which is uh, another thing that we've talked about a bunch and you've written about a bunch, which is the the zero distribution, zero transaction costs, which is different from what AT&T uh, experienced when, when, when they were going through all that. No, that, That's a good point. I mean, because people have asked like, oh, what's their training aggregation theory? And like, like we talk about like the law of conservation of profits, for example, or like what mm. double sided network. Well, the point of it is it's all that stuff, right? It, it is the network effects that we've seen elsewhere. It's the law of conservation of profits that we've seen elsewhere. It's also the zero distribution costs. And what I've always kind of tossed in is zero transaction costs. 
And mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's an underappreciated piece uh, by me. Specifically. I haven't written really – I've written a ton about distribution costs, but not so much about transaction costs. What I mean by transaction costs is how much does it cost to add on one more customer or one more supplier, for example, right? And that is – that's always provides sort of a natural cap on how large a company can be is like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like how many customers can you actually service, right? How many stores can you actually build? How many endpoints can you actually develop? Or how many suppliers can you, can you bring online, right? If you're a grocery store, the number of suppliers – is capped by your shelf space and your inventory and your actual like human capital to actually mm. sign deals with people, right? Where Amazon, for example, is so much different is you can be a merchant and you can sign up for Amazon without ever talking to a human. And, or you can be an advertiser on Google or Facebook and never talk to someone. And so you have no transaction costs on both sides of these networks. So users can add themselves and Facebook can scale to 2 billion people. And yes, of course, Facebook has spent massive amounts of money on on the servers and all sorts of stuff to serve all those people. But but the marginal cost of adding one more customer is is zero. And the sort of and it can scale infinitely. And this this ability to scale infinitely because there's no transaction costs to adding on either side of the network is a real differentiating factor for aggregation theory, for understanding its impacts and how it affects things and why it can have these sort of winner take all effects. Mm. And it's interesting because in, in this is where you know it's, I talk about this. Everything has changed, and some people will take it as, "Oh, you're look at Ben defending the tech industry." I'm not defending the tech industry. In fact, the the tech industry itself has all kinds of things to blame them for. I mean, like, for example, this week there was the the bit about Facebook and like Russian ads, right? And mm. uh, and you know, John Gruber made the original point that on the grand grand scheme of things, like that, it's a it's like it's pennies for Facebook. Like it, it's not like they were doing. Facebook wasn't doing anything explicitly evil. So, like, oh, if we did this, we could get a just a couple. We get a hundred thousand dollars from the Russians. Like, no, of course, nothing was intentional, right? But there are sins of commission and there are sins of omission, right? Mm-hmm. And there are no sort of controls around this. Like Facebook was at the minimum facilitating the breaking of the law. Like a foreign entity cannot cannot do advertising to influence U.S. election. Like in how much responsibility does Facebook have? I'm sure that's going to be fleshed out o- over time. Mm-hmm. But the point is there, there were certainly no controls around this because it didn't occur to them to have any sort of controls. And quite the contrary, all the drive is to make it more convenient, to make it faster, to make mm-hmm. it easier to onboard more people to minimize those transaction costs and and what are the sort of bigger costs that come from that the analogy i made in the daily update um is that it was microsoft right microsoft doing its breakneck we gotta get on the internet the internet's a big deal you know that famous memo that 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 that, that bill gates wrote you know it's this t- tidal wave coming and so microsoft went all out to build a network capability to everything they had and what did they do? They opened up massive security holes all over the place that we're still dealing with, right? We are still, as a broader like economy and society, dealing with Microsoft's headlong rush into the internet like 25, 20 years ago. And, and and now you're seeing the same thing. That's the exact same thing you see here. Like that the 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 rush to make things more efficient and more convenient, how what costs, what debt are we accruing along the way? Yeah, well, and couple that with tech companies' inability to do a good job of controlling the narrative to the broader populace, like the hearts and minds of folks, and focusing on on tactical stuff 
uh, and it's almost knee jerk sometimes in terms of people's reaction. Your, your example of, uh, of, of Google with the press release earlier. And you think back to the knee jerk reaction that Zuckerberg had about the Russian election, like that it was ridiculous to suggest that Facebook had any, uh, influence on it. Like that was his immediate knee jerk reaction. And it's patently false and it starts to turn people against them. And, as it becomes clear to broader parts of the population that perhaps these organizations are in part responsible for the pain that they're feeling or or the division that's occurring, it might become politically popular for politicians to start to present options that end up hurting these organizations and that 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 start to undercut exactly what you've just described these zero transaction costs and as more and more of those and as more and more of those add up it's going to really cut into their ability to have these phenomenal businesses that they've had in the past right there's all kinds of questions that need to be unpacked here right because that aspect of like the zero transaction costs and the scalability that's like that's part of what my whole point there's new businesses that can be built because of that mm. what new business can you build when you can reach people across all those sorts of things because these platforms these pla- these these platforms have built it out. If you, if you were to back up sort of big picture and let's say let's let's jump ahead and let's say all right, we've agreed as a society that these companies need to be regulated. Okay? Again, we're skipping over the whole like should they be regulated or not argument, mm. which is certainly a, the, the more pertinent one and mm. we'll have plenty of time to do. But let's presume we've agreed as a society that these companies need to be regulated. I've been I've been waiting for 120 episodes for you to say that one. <laughs> <laughs> like if we if Sorry. you just step back big picture well, and that's that's kind of the point like if you were to back up in big picture and say okay there are these massive platforms you would probably think about regulation from sort of utility sort of perspective right yeah and, and but what's interesting is if we don't take this big picture view Mm-hmm. And say, like, here are the safe harbor provision. Like, you start legislating, like, individual little pieces instead of looking at it in a systematic sort of way. What's interesting is your regulation actually starts going in the exact opposite direction of what the ideal regulation may end up being. If the ideal regulation is treat these as utilities, do you want to have regulation that that's, treats them like like a factory? I mean, no. It, it's, it, there's, you, you might end up in a place you didn't – that's not the optimal place to be. Totally. And, and uh, I, again, the immediate thing that comes to mind is all the things that you prevent that, that you didn't even realize you were doing as a result of this kind of regulation. And yeah, I, I, this is, this is what's been lacking in the debate. Like people stepping back and re-examining the fundamental assumptions and, 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 and thinking, does this make sense? The utility thing. I mean, again, like you touched on it with AT&T being a place to, to think about how you might approach this, but things have changed so much even since then. And, and that's what I think we need more of, like going, not, not just jumping to trying to get the answer straight away. You've got to do the hard work of what comes before of really understanding what's going on in order to find the right answer. Yeah. And just to be really clear, like I don't have all the answers for this. And like part of this is try to figure out like how do we go about this going forward and so that's why i put mm. that forward it's kind of like let's think big picture if we decide regulation is necessary and you know i'm leaning towards it, it probably is of some sort but then you get into like well what what, what kind what's mm. not and it, the point the broader point is not to say i have all the answers but are we sure we're asking all the right questions if that's yeah. sort of the big picture meta point that i was trying to make this week is are we sure we're asking all the right questions 
Yeah, I mean, I think if nothing else, that has been a recurring theme over 123 episodes too, and it's it's a it's a valuable it's a valuable reminder. And so many times these issues come up, and like we can examine it, and it, it and it can be frustrating too. Listening, it's frustrating talking about it sometimes because you just want that answer, but sometimes recognizing you don't have it, and that other smart minds need to take the baton and run with it. But asking the right questions is always the starting point because otherwise you just end up in the wrong direction. You pick up the wrong tool and apply it incorrectly, and you end up in some place that you never thought you would be. That's worse than when you started. Yep. Yep. Well said. Like the middle of Nevada. <laughs> uh, the middle of Nevada is better than you think if you've got 70,000 friends there with you and some pretty cool artwork. Our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent as they do every week. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right, bye-bye.